belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for November 14, 2021 is called How Much More? The speaker is Shannon Barrowcliffe and the location is Vespers Point, Mount Sequoia, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Once again, good morning and welcome to Grace for Northwest Arkansas. We're glad to have you here today. So my name is Shannon Barrowcliffe and my husband Mark and I have been coming to Grace since June, although he works Sundays so you probably haven't seen very much of him. I want to take a few minutes to share what I have experienced at Grace in the past five and a half months. We were introduced to Grace through several of our friends at a time when I was experiencing immense church hurt. The Rays and Cornettes were quick to connect with us, sit with us in our pain, on offering genuine love and support that had been so obviously lacking in our last home. After that, I was able to start connecting with more of you, also welcoming. I thank you for that. In August, without an official ask, the Cornettes opened their home to my friend Liz and I, uh, who wanted to teach a class exploring women in the church at a time when seemingly every other door, every other church door, was closing. Grace Church amazed us further uh, by then adding that class to their listed offerings without us even asking and without an interrogation about our curriculum. And by the way, for those that may have missed it and wanted to uh, do it, we'll probably offer it again next year. (laughs) Thanks, Roll. While attending the Discovering Grace table group this fall, I asked to join the teaching team to learn how sermons are created an opportunity never permitted to me and my pastor just because of my gender. Now, why do I share all of this with you? One reason is to highlight and give thanks uh, probably most to things that probably most of you have felt while attending Grace, love, safety, community, and trust. And the other, I've never done this before and I'm incredibly nervous, (laughs) so bear with me. And as I probably just read my notes verbatim, so. (laughs) So without further ado, let us begin. Last week, John shared how he can't remember the first time he went to church. The first time he heard Jesus, the first time he read the Bible, or even his own baptism. He called it blessed. While I can remember the first time I went to church, I can remember the first time someone told me who Jesus was and is, and I can picture my baptism nearly perfectly. I call it blessed too, but probably for the opposite reason as John. I haven't always seen my late arrival to my faith in Christ as a blessing, but I cherish it now. In fact, since moving to Northwest Arkansas, I have made incredibly close friends. Friends who grew up in the church and seemingly know uh, know the Bible deeply through their years of homeschooling, private school, and something called Bible drills. So I still don't quite understand what that really is. These friends are quick to remind me of my growth and encourage me that I don't need 18 plus years of church programs, Bible stories shown through finger puppets, or sunrise or candlelit services to know who Christ is. Another reason I call my newly found faith blessed is because I didn't have Christ, or really I didn't know Christ, so I can understand what a life without my Savior means. I, I also, it also means that since I wasn't raised in church, learning uh, truths before I could speak, like John had talked about, Christianese, Christianese terms like justification 
hope and sin make me pause and think of my favorite Princess Bride quote. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Preparing for today and reading Romans 5 through 7, I thought about my experience in the church and seeing faithful followers use Christ, uh, faithful followers of Christ use words, phrases, and cherry-picked verses um, to build a foundation for which I, a recent-ish convert, pause in confusion. I haven't had the Bible, the rule books, that may say, my whole life, so I have continually concluded that I must be missing some basic points. But what if Paul was calling out the Roman Jews, the ones who had the Torah, the rules for their misappropriation of basic Jewish concepts? What would it mean for the Gentile converts, those new to the faith, to have a correct understanding of foundational truths about God? I argue that it means we're one step closer to understanding our God the way that Jesus has always understood him to be from creation. Last week, we left off in Romans where Paul was correcting the Roman Jews for believing their good works or strict adherence to the Torah, the, the rules, would earn them the title of righteous. Paul reminds his brothers and sisters in verse 5 that the one who does not work but believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. Full stop right there. That is incredible. God cares more about faith in him, faith in him as a savior, than faith or adherence to the rules. That feels incredibly liberating. Hit too many pages. Here we go. Paul continues his corrections from, uh, from chapter 4 to Romans 5.1. Join me now. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through who we have also obtained access into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Not only this, but we also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Much more than, oh, excuse me, <laughs> for while we were still helpless, all the right at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we will, were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God how, uh, through the death of his son, how much more, uh, since we have been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Inconceivable. That's probably what the Roman Jews were thinking when Phoebe was reading Paul's words. Now, I shared with you earlier that when Christianese terms like grace, hope, and sin are used, I pause and must look up their true meaning or intended meanings. As these words are so common, their connotations have been reshaped in such a way that I think I must be missing the point. So for my own sake... I'm going to share their core value or essence 
And hopefully you'll find it helpful as an exercise to recenter your own understanding of these terms. Paul shares a path to hope. Verse 3 states, we also rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. If, the hope, if hope is the end goal for our development, what hope is Paul reminding the Jews of so adamantly? Marty Solomon, a teacher and voice behind the Bema podcast, sums up hope perfectly. He says, ultimately, the hope is that God really is who he says that he is and always was who he says he was and that we really are what he says we are, loved, valued, accepted, and cherished. This hope does not disappoint because somewhere in our bones, through the Holy Spirit, we know this to be true. I love that definition of hope. So this hope is seen beautifully in verse 7, a verse that probably makes you stop and pause. Verse 7 reads, For rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person perhaps someone might possibly dare to die. To connect these ideas of hope and self-sacrifice, we need to jump back to Genesis, to creation. After each day, what does God call his creation? Good. Tov. And what does God call his creation after all six days? And very good. Toth me out. Um, God calls us good. Very good. Our hope is intricately woven into God's word about us back to creation. It seems to me that Paul is reminding the Jews of this foundational truth. God calls, God calls his creation very good. And we have hope that we are what he says we are. Very good. And anything good is worth saving, worth dying for, as Christ demonstrated on the cross. Notice in verse 7 that the righteous person, or the, one, the person who does the, the right thing, follows the right rules, that person isn't worth dying for. Um, it's the inherent goodness of all that Paul is talking about. Now that Paul has reminded the Jews of these foundational truths, he moves on to remind and redefine another concept instrumental in our belief system, sin. Starting in verse 12. So then, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all people because all sinned. For, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But there was no accounting for sin when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who did not sin in the same way that Adam, who is a type of the one coming, transgressed. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if the many died through the transgression of the one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by which the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many? And the gift is not like the one who sinned. For judgment resulting from the one transgression led to condemnation, for the gracious gift from the many failures led to justification. For if, by the transgression of the one man, death reigned through the one, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as condemnation for all people came through one transgression, so too, through the one righteous act came righteousness leading to the life for all people. For just as though the disobedience of the one man, many were constituted sinner, 
so also through the obedience of one man, many will be constituted righteous. Now the law came in so that the transgression may increase. But where sin increased, grace multiplied all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Crystal Curler, right? Hardly. Chapters 5 through 7 are not easy to read. And in the past, I found myself breezing through these passages uh, rather than slowing down and stepping back and looking at the narrative as a whole. It's easy enough to see that Paul is building on concepts, on thoughts, but we must be disciplined enough to slow down, to stack these constructs so that we don't miss the big picture. To help us understand what Paul was, is writing, we need to understand how he is writing. Paul is using a rabbinical teaching tool where, where points are made through juxtaposition, and it's called kaval kamer, literally translated lenient and strict. It's the principle of lesser and greater, as seen through the phrase, how much more in our texts, our translated texts. Paul is demonstrating principles that are universally true um, and showing them in the most basic of examples. In other words, if, insert your principle here, is true in the simplest of terms, how much more uh, will it be true in other circumstances? So let's look at the parable of the unjust judge in Luke 18. This is a perfect example of a calvacomere. In the parable, a woman is pleading for justice to a corrupt judge, a judge who lacks care for God and people. The woman persists in her ask of the judge who finally relents and gives her justice because of her unending pleas. So Jesus argues, if an unrighteous judge relents and grants justice, how much more Will our God, full of love and grace, give to his people who cry out to him by day and night? By comparing a simple truth, one that all believers can agree upon, to a more complicated one, allows Paul to drive home his points. And remember, Jews would have been familiar with this rabbinical teaching tool and understand those nuances when they heard it, whereas we often miss them. So grace to us here. So let's look at the text again and see if we can find one of these examples, uh, and if it becomes clear. So let's look at verse 15. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if the many died through the transgression of the one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many? Here Paul is comparing the acts of two people and their effects. If one man and one act can cause death, referring to Adam um, and sin, how much more or how much greater is the act of one man, Jesus and his crucifixion, that can bring life, liberty, and freedom to the masses? I challenge you to reread verses 12 through 21 today um, and see if you can spot the Calvacomeres for yourself. See if you better understand the comparisons that Paul is making and to what end he's making them for. In these three chapters, there is a very big elephant in the room, one that causes people to skip these chapters altogether or cherry-pick them until they have lost their true meaning. Of course, I'm talking about sin. Paul can't seem to say enough about the subject, which means we must pay attention. I mean, he's using chapters on sin. But is he trying to condemn the Roman church 
or liberate them from their own constructs of sin. When preparing uh, for today, I experienced liberation from Paul's words, and I hope you do too. My discovery from the kind of the text kind of shook me to the core, like the kind of shakeup that makes me question why I haven't seen it before. Perhaps you'll experience it too, or perhaps uh, this is old news and I'm just late to the game. We'll see. Either way, I love these truth bonds from God. In verse th- 13, it states, For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But there is no accounting for sin where there is no law. In other words, sin has always existed. But the law, or the Torah, helped us know sin, define sin. It became our measuring rod. Scott McKnight, in his book, Reading Romans Backwards, explains it this way. The entrance of the Torah multiplied sin, talking little s, okay, into sin, big s. Sin, little s, needs Torah for the act to become known for what it is. But death's presence from Adam to Moses establishes that sin was rampant through the Torah. I'm going to say that again. Death's presence from Adam to Moses establishes that sin was rampant without Torah. That's just crazy to me. I don't know about you, but it just blows my mind that it feels like sin has always been big sin, the big capital S sin. Since becoming a believer in college a certain number of years ago, uh, I have picked up that I, a follower of Christ, am a sinner, capital S sinner. And it's it's harped on so much that it has become my identity, um, my measuring stick. It has become who I am, not what I do. My perceived righteousness is measuring my sinfulness, again, capital S, against others, and somehow always coming out on top. Why has this become the main thing? Yeah, maybe you've experienced that too. So why has this become the main thing, right? Like sin first. Focusing on sin makes my my faith about me, not about Jesus. Chapters 6 and 7, through the seemingly never-ending compounding transitional phrases, such as what then, therefore, and so thens, has been weaponized in the past to condemn believers and show us of our utter depravity. Conversely, these concepts have also been argued as a free pass, if you will, to sin, since the more you sin, the more gift of grace is bestowed upon us. But Paul is quick to check all of these misguided notions with a simple absolutely not rebuttal we see in the text. I can picture Phoebe uh, teaching these seemingly radical concepts to the Roman church and then arguing with, arguing with her, trying to catch her and Paul in a corner. But they are ready for their arguments with two chapters worth of counter arguments, rebuttals, refocusing the church's attention to God's grace and Christ's gift to us rather than their rules. I told you this was probably going to be pretty short because it's my first time. So I'm already going to ask the worship band to come back up. (sighs) Try it. So I asked the question, what then is Paul trying to correct about sin? The Roman Jews made sin their measuring rod, their focus, just like I tend to do today. And that's not correct. Paul is pointing us back to God and the fact that sin has nothing on God's grace. Sin can't take away the hope we have in God and his promises. I want to be clear, and so does Paul. Sin is serious. It's destructive, and we need to actively work to turn away and repent. But the beauty in all of this is that the more we understand about sin, 
the more we understand about the more we understand about God's grace, love, and truth. And what is this truth? That we are good. Tov. Created in his image, Imago Dei. And God has given us no indication that this truth has changed. And if this is true at the time of creation, how much more is it true today because of the gift of Christ Jesus? Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.